distinguishing characteristics of both, especially the doctrine of hate, Lord. What does it mean to hate? What is it about? Lord, I pray that over these next couple of weeks that you would, that you would reveal that to us, that you would reveal in our hearts where we hate, where we need to get rid of that, where these dark places reside in our own personal hearts. Lord, we all have them. We all have spots where we are blind. Lord, I pray that you would show us, you would reveal to us. And then, Father, that you would help us to be instruments of light in a world that is increasingly being swallowed by hatred, Lord. That you would help us to be instruments of love and speak this love into this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hate and love are two opposites, and that's at least often what we hear. Some say, though, that the opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. How many of you have heard that? And that's often said, and I think, um, really in the matters of love. And I think that it applies to the matters of love or to romance. And I think when you say that indifference is the opposite of love, It's really true in the matters of the heart. But in the matters of the heart, I think that indifference is often confused, or hatred is often confused, excuse me, with rage, and the rage of a broken heart as opposed to actual hate. And this is where we get the saying, heaven hath no wrath, like love turned to hate, and hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. Most people don't know the first part of that statement. They only know the second part of that statement. But biblically, hate and love are, in fact, opposites. If you've read Scripture at all, you might not get that at first, but if you've read it for any length of time, you'll begin to understand that. Why are they opposites? Well, this is because they are the coin, or in Huntsville parlance, they are the operating systems of two different realms, right? They're like the Mac in the PC operating systems of two different realms. One, the kingdom of darkness, Bill Gates. The other, the kingdom of light, Steve Jobs, as we will see over the next couple of weeks. The Mac and the PC of the operating system world. And we're going to look at that as we look at 1 John and the Gospel of John. So open with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John. So in Thursday, if you're with me in our Bible study on Thursday, in the Gospel of John, we read this. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, this is what Jesus says, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now the commandment, Excuse me, this is the commandment which John is referring to in our epistle today. This is the one that he's saying right when, when he says this in 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. John is not talking about Genesis, the, the commandment that you've heard from Genesis forward. He's talking about the commandment that you've heard from Jesus Right? You've heard this commandment to love from the beginning. This new commandment that I've given you. The apostles, when they began to teach you this faith, or whoever taught you the faith, you've heard this commandment as Christians from the beginning. So, beloved, I'm not teaching you something you haven't heard. So, from the very 
time you were pups in the church, from the very time you were just began in the church, you have heard this commandment. And this is what John is teaching. And it's spoken by Jesus right after he dips a morsel into a bowl and hands it to Judas Iscariot. Now remember, there's two Judases. Judas Iscariot is one Judas. The other Judas is the good Judas. Imagine having that name. For the rest of the biblical times, everyone, when they think about Judas, thinks about Iscariot the betrayer. But you could actually name your son Judas and be naming it after the other guy who did good things, right? So the other one. But Judas Iscariot gets this morsel, and then he runs off to do a bad thing. Now, the rest of the apostles just think he's running off to do an errand. That's why they don't stop him. Jesus and Judas, at this point, are the only two who know what Judas is about to do. So, when Jesus gives this commandment, they don't understand what he has just done and where the commandment comes. Now, later on, when John writes this, he, of course, understands why Jesus gives this commandment right after this, right? So, they think he's running off to perform some errand, but Judas, of course, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But why does he do it? Why does Judas betray Jesus? Luke 22, 3 gives us a glimpse. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. So Satan is, of course, the author of sin. He's the first person to fall into sin. But this is what's important. People understand this. Satan does not control sin. Satan is a slave to sin himself. So once Satan falls into sin, he is a slave to sin. Just like we are all slaves to sin when we fall into sin. But more than that, he's dominated by hatred of all things godly and of God himself. So in the opening of Matthew, we read how Jesus, or excuse me, how Joseph took Jesus off to Egypt. Why does he do that? To escape Herod, who is a servant of Satan. He's a seed of the serpent, and he takes him off to Egypt so Herod can't murder Jesus. So Satan's servant is trying to kill Jesus. From the very beginning, Satan is trying to do that. Then you have this next instance where Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So why does Satan tempt him? Anybody know? What's he trying to do there? What's he trying to do? He wants him to fall into sin. And what are the consequences that happen? Has anybody thought about that? What would happen if God fell into sin? It would what? He wouldn't be able to be a perfect sacrifice. What else? Scripture says that Jesus holds all things together. I mean, some people, if you think about this, if the Godhead fell into sin, it would destroy the Godhead. And if Jesus holds all things together and all things are held together in Christ Jesus, everything would be plunged into sin. It would destroy everything. And if Jesus couldn't be the sacrifice, then you and I couldn't be saved. It would murder humanity for eternity. So Satan is eternally trying to murder humanity, and he's trying to destroy the Godhead. So Satan's schemes are pretty extensive, okay? And then after that, he tries to 
murder Jesus on the cross, but while on the cross, he tries to tempt Jesus again. That's why all the mocking, that's why all the temptations, that's why what's going on there. Again, he tries to get Jesus to to fall again, and so constantly trying to lure him away, trying to get him to fall into sin. So as you can see, Satan is a creature of hate to the core. He's about the destruction of all things holy and the eradication of humanity as we are beloved by God. He wants the destruction of God and either the destruction of creation. We, we can't interview Satan, so we don't know what his ultimate goals are. But he either wants the destruction of creation or he wants the bondage of all creation to sin to keep on lasting. Now, we know that creation is in bondage to sin. Why? Well, we find out that, about that in Genesis 3. When, when, when Adam and Eve sin, all of creation changes. That's part of the curse. But all of creation changes because all of creation is under Adam and Eve. And so when they sin, it has implications for the world. But we also read about this in Romans 8, 20, and 21. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, see that? And obtain the freedom of the glory to the children of God. A glory of the children of God. So you see, even Paul talks about that, that all of creation, when we sinned, when humanity sinned, all of creation was put in bondage. It was put in a yoke. It will one day be set free when the new heavens and the new earth are given to us out of the second coming. So Why does creation not work as it's supposed to? Why are there thorns in the ground? Why do we have to work so hard? Why do we have droughts? Why do we have hurricanes that kill us? Why does all this thing, why did it happen? Because of sin. We're not eternal because of sin. We die because of sin. We shake our fists and blame God for the tragedies that befall us, but the tragedies that befall us are whose fault? Ours. We are petulant children. We are like the two-year-olds who get into trouble, and whose fault is it? If you're a parent, you understand this. They hit mommy and daddy because it's mommy and daddy's fault. And we understand how, uh, how petulant they're being, but then we go when things go wrong with us, and we blame God just like our two-year-old children. I hear this all the time. We, we, we're no better <clears throat> than they are with him. Now, After the return of Jesus, everything will work differently. It will perhaps work better, or at least as originally intended at at creation. But it's Satan and the temptation intended to destroy all of this. That's what he did when he tempted Adam and Eve. It was an act of pure hatred. Don't believe me, think about this. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation was changed. But what do we read happens in the very next chapter? Murder. So if Adam and Eve didn't think that their sin was that serious, when they had to bury their baby boy because their other baby boy murdered them, do you think at that point that they thought their sin was serious? And then it talks about how the entire world devolves into hatred, lust, violence. The violence of humanity is endless. And when you think then that all of the murder and the war and the bloodshed 
and the crime and the abuse of all types. We have children here. The violence of all types, the crime of all types that has ever existed came because sin entered into the world. And that sin entered into the world because of Satan's temptation. You, and Satan understood that. Then you understand the level of hatred from that kind of being. It is the coin or the operating system of the kingdom of darkness. And once you understand that, you begin to understand the power of hatred. And once you understand the power of hatred, you understand what Satan was really trying to do in the garden and with the murder of Abel and the, murder of, and the attempted murder of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus and then again at the cross. Satan was trying to get Jesus to die before he could sacrifice himself and then to sin during the act of sacrifice. It was the attempted murder of humanity. And you begin to understand the power, the raw power of hatred. And then you can contrast that with what the kingdom of God is speaking of when God begins to talk about agape love and when he begins to talk about philia love, agape and philia love, okay? So Jesus gives us a new commandment which is juxtaposed, contrasted, right? Juxtaposed or contrasted with the hatred of Satan's servant. John 13, 34, right? And this new commandment then is contrasted with what Judas is doing. That's why John gives it. So Jesus gives it right after Judas has just dipped the morsel. Do you get it? The disciples didn't understand that, but Jesus is giving it right after Judas goes and does his action. That's not to be missed in this story. That's why it's coming. An act of pure hate in the kingdom of darkness is about to occur, or just occurred, and is about to occur. And Jesus now gives his commandment, this is what you're to be distinguished by. Judas is to be distinguished by betrayal and hatred and denying the king and trying to destroy the kingdom of God. You now, I give a new commandment. You are to be distinguished by agape love. And here's what he says. A new commandment in John 13, 34, and 35. I give to you that you agape one another just as I have agaped you. So you also are to agape one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have agape for one another. Unconditional love. The love that I have loved you with, I have loved you even unto death. This is the love that you are to have for one another. That means in the church. So look around in the church. Do you have love for one another? Now he's going to say this to you. And this is more convicting to you. Think about the brother or sister that is a believer. I'm not talking about a non-believer right now. I'm just talking about a believer. Think about that brother or sister who annoys you the most or ticks you off the most, that you are the most angry at. Give you a second. Put them in your brain. The one you love the least is as much as you love God. That's what Jesus says, right? That's the new commandment. As you have loved the one you love the least, so you have loved me. 
Are you loving others as Jesus has loved you? This is the commandment. Are you loving others in this room? Are you loving others in this church? This is where it starts. This is your first family. Are you reaching out to others? Are you making an effort to get to know others in your family? Or do you not even know their names? Right? It's reaching out and loving. We are called to live in a community, and a community that's to be distinguished or characterized by love. This is how they are to know you by your agape for one another. Do you have the love of Jesus for one another? And how can you have this if you don't even know each other's names? Or eat with one another, or sup with one another, or know anything about one another? Ouch, Jeff, stop talking. I understand. Now, it's a little confusing, and we got into this in my Bible study, because last week, Jesus and John, uh, we talked about love as obedience. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so some folks had some questions. Wow, well, last week we talked about obedience to commandments. And so if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But here it appears to be something different. But Jesus and John were not saying that the love of God was only obedience to God's commands. Jesus said that if you love him, you will obey his commands. So that obedience is an aspect of our love for God, but that's not the entirety of love. It's a component of loving God, but it's not an attribute of loving or loving one another. 1 Corinthians 13 speaks more of the attributes of love, though it doesn't list all of them. I want you to listen to the attributes of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, right? Most of us know that passage at some level, although I would posit we probably don't know it at a deeper level. But we know it at some level, okay? Notice what's not in there. Obedience. Why is it not in there? Well, if I'm talking to you about your love for Jesus, if you love Jesus and God, you will obey his commandments, right? But if you love your brother or sister in Christ, you won't necessarily obey their commandments. It's a little bit different, right? So my love for God, if I want to love God and grow to be like God, then I'm going to have to understand how he teaches me to be like him right? I'm going to have to understand his ways. And so that necessarily entails learning to be like him and to obey his commandments, even those commandments which I least like, right? There's always commandments that I don't like. The world will always teach us a different way. There's always a set of commandments which I don't like and which our culture currently tells us is evil. Our culture will always tell us, no matter what culture you're in, there will be a subset of the commandments that have taught us it's evil. The Romans did not like humility, to be humble was evil, right? And they would teach us that. Our culture is a subset of things that they teach us are evil, right? They don't like our teachings, any teachings on sexuality. Those are all evil. Whatever it is, there's always a subset of teachings that are evil. But we want to become more like God. We follow these commandments, those commandments which we least like and which are least, they, we have to follow those, but we're learning to be more like God. But that doesn't mean that those are all attributes of that. 
right? And so when we're learning to love one another, we have different characteristics. We don't have to learn to obey one another, although I would posit this. Children who learn to love their parents have to also obey them. That is a characteristic of your love for your parents. You obey your parents. That is part of loving your parents, right? That's characteristic, but it's not an attribute of love. These are attributes of love. Notice the, these um, Notice the list in 1 Corinthians does not list obedience, but it tells us how to love one another. They're different than our love for God. These attributes are what, to, what characterize our behavior towards one another. In short, we are called to behave towards one another with these attitudes. So, patience and kindness in our relationships with our fellow believers, including our spouses and our parents and our children of all ages. Think about the radical relational changes that this behavior alone would bring to your marriage or your friendships or your relationships in church if you were to regularly put patience and kindness into practice. Think about that. If you were to be patient in all your relationships and kind rather than nasty and impatient. If you dealt with your fellow believers, including your spouse and children, with patience instead of impulsiveness, and kindness instead of the mean and cruel spirit of our age. Think about the conversations that so characterize our Facebook discussions or our Twitter discussions or whatever hot social app of the day you're on. I mean, we can be cruel. I mean, that's kind of the coin of our day. I mean, our current culture if you're out of favor for whatever ideology or teaching you have, you're supposed to be attacked and assaulted and beaten up and avoided at all costs. That's what the culture teaches. But too many Christians are absorbing this teaching. We're becoming like the world. We're becoming hateful people like them. But that's not what we have. There's no forgiveness in the world. We're supposed to be forgiving. We're supposed to be kind to one another. We're supposed to be kind to them as well. We have to be treating one another as Christ teaches us. Why? We understand that the other person is a sinner just like we are. We all sin. And so when a person sins, we need to confront, we need to forgive. But we also need to treat each other with kindness. We don't need to come at one another with nastiness and wagging our finger. Why do we not wag our finger? Because we understand that no matter what their sin is, we are also sinners. We are also sinners. But kindness speaks to more than simply that. It also speaks to the opposite of rudeness. How many of us are just rude in our regular conversations with one another? Have you been like that? When you could be nice or polite, are you just rude with your spouse? Are you just rude with your kids? Are you just rude in the stores? Why not be kind? Try it sometimes. There's a nastiness that comes with familiarity. I see this all the time. Families begin to talk to one another with a rudeness that they wouldn't visit upon their worst enemies. Parents tolerate insufferable language and behavior from their children, thereby teaching them to be nasty to all authority figures. Or even worse, parents denigrate authority figures to their children, teaching their children that it's okay to mock and tear down teachers or coaches or youth ministers or pastors or principals or police officers, whoever, teaching them that authority doesn't matter. Right? We get this spirit of hubris and then we teach them that teaching that rudeness and nastiness is the order of the day. We're called to speak to one another 
as Jesus would speak to you or to them? Do you speak to other people as Jesus would speak to them? This is a characteristic of love, right? It's the coin of the realm. It's our operating system. That's how we are to call, even when we disagree with them. Now, this doesn't mean sugarcoating or lying. It means speaking the truth when it's needing, needed, not saying things when they shouldn't be said and not being nasty or rude when we can be loving or kind. The same goes with envying or boasting. It says love is proud of others' accomplishments. And we don't have to interject ourselves into those accomplishments. We celebrate them. We genuinely celebrate them. We don't have to mention ourselves in them. We don't have to feel jealous when others achieve. And we don't have to mention ourselves when, we are, uh, when, when they've accomplished something. We can be genuinely happy for another person. Have you ever had that moment when someone else has done something and you're proud for them, but then you have that little twinge that you wish you were them? What is that? That's a sinful attitude on our part. It shows us that we're jealous. We need to be happy for that person. And you ever heard the person who, who kind of gets up when someone else is having that moment and then interjects themselves into that moment, begins to boast? That's wrong too. You need to be proud for that person and give to that person, not interject yourself. That's what he's talking about here. That's what Paul's saying. It's a genuine sign of love and affection for another person when you are proud for that person, thinking about that other person, and not interjecting yourself at all. You're completely in the moment, completely happy for them. Boasting is about us. It's a sign of self-centeredness, including the humble brag, the worst of them all, I think, sometimes. The person who brags while feigning not bragging. Look, a narcissist is going to work themselves into every conversation and has a deep and abiding problem that damages or even destroys most, if not every, relationship and even jobs. But we can still struggle in both these areas without being narcissists. Insisting on one's own way is a bit more obvious and a bit more common in our day. In the extreme, it's a mark of immaturity. A person who struggles in this area simply cannot give of themselves and cannot sacrifice for the other. But in less extreme cases, we as believers in the church want things as we want them, and we don't care what other people want, right? We don't care how they want them. We want music the way we want it. We want masking the way we want it, right? Or not masking the way we want it. We insist on sitting in the same place in church and get mad if someone dares to sit in our seats. I was once in a church. People came down the aisle and were mad that visitors were sitting in their seat and told them to move because it was our seats. Can you imagine? We get upset at the times of services. We want a different time. Children in church or out of church, where should they be? In a fight at home, we have to be right and the other person has to be wrong. Have you ever been in that situation? We get so caught up in the fight that you have to win. It doesn't matter even what the fight was about. It could have been about anything. You don't care. You have to win. Have you been like that? That's a pride issue. And it's destructive to relationship. What if you didn't care about whether you had to win? What if you actually cared what was in the other person's heart? And what if you cared more about the other person's soul 
and helping the other person and restoring your relationship than you did about winning? How would that change your relationships? How might that change your marriage? How might that change how you get along with your children? Right? I have people all the time asking me, Jeff, could you preach on how to heal this relationship or that relationship? I don't get along with my older children or my younger children. I don't get along with my spouse or my friends. But all of these principles apply to all relationships. If you're not getting along with any particular relationship, it's because you're not applying these principles. Go look at the relationships that are broken. And where are you not applying these principles? And that's what Paul's saying. Arrogance needs to win. Glossing over the truth is another big mark of a lack of love. And this one's a little trickier. How many of you have glossed over the truth in a fight? You've just ignored a big problem. You've swallowed it down. How many of you have done that? There's like a big relationship problem with your spouse or your uncle or your aunt or somebody or a friend, and you just keep ignoring it. And eventually you just kind of walk off from the relationship. You don't want to deal with it. Happens all the time with acquaintances. Happens all the time in churches. I see people will leave a church rather than deal with a bad relationship. They would rather come, they'll take communion, they'll do whatever, and they might even just, whatever. But they'll, they won't deal with a person they don't get along with. They'll just swallow it down. They'll bury it. They'll gloss it over. Why do we do that? Well, the gospel says that's a lack of love. You're called to speak the truth and to work out an issue when you have an issue with a person. Why? Well, you want to reconcile. You want to be at one with your brother or sister in Christ. You want to be at one with your husband and your wife. Swallowing these problems, sweeping them over, it doesn't work. It just creates a divide. It creates bitterness or hatred or indifference. It's the opposite of love. It prevents repentance and reconciliation. And God's people are called to be about both. And these are marks of the church. Pretending that we aren't angry, hiding bitterness, letting it grow is a sin. It's a mark of spiritual immaturity. All of these things are sinful. They're all unbecoming of believers. And you are called, no, you are commanded to be different. So we'll end with this. So this morning, now that you've all realized that you've fallen short in these areas, and we all have, make it a point to change. If you have an issue with a brother or sister in Christ, and you've realized it, Go and work it out. If you've got an issue with someone in your family, go and work it out. Don't come for communion until you do. You're in sin if you do. Don't pretend like you aren't. You aren't fooling God, even if you've been trying to fool yourself. Or for some strange reason, whatever pastor is handing it out. When we're handing out communion... We're not trying to read your mind, and you're not fooling us. We're just handing it out. We give you the warning, but it's you and God. It's between you and God. We don't know what's in your heart, but we know God is. If you realize you've really been struggling in other areas of loving your brothers and sisters, commit it to prayer. Go back to the prayer team if you like. Have them help and pray with you. Or just commit it to your 